0: To my life. And welcome to episode number 21 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, aka The Beretta Cast. I'm your host, Glenn Peoples, and today's episode is. Is Sexing Up Early Christian History Why are conspiracy theories so popular? Now listen to this first of all. You might recognize this clip if you've ever seen the movie which was based on the book by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. The good book did not arrive by facsimile from heaven. (laughs) The Bible as we know it was finally presided over by one man. The pagan emperor Constantine. Constantine Actually the movie is less explicit than the book. I just wanted to play that clip because I think Sir Ian McCallum has a really good voice. Here's the way that the character Sir Leigh Teabing puts it in the pages of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. He says, and I quote, or Dan Brown says, and I quote, Teabing paused to sip his tea and then placed his cup back on the mantel. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. Who chose which Gospels to include? Sophie asked. Aha! Teabing burst in with enthusiasm, the fundamental irony of Christianity. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. So there you have it. Emperor Constantine himself compiled the Bible. Dan Brown has, of course, said to the media that all the fuss is over nothing, and that his book was only ever intended to be a work of fiction, so don't worry about anything it says. I wonder then if Dan Brown would mind if a movie maker made a movie about the life of Dan Brown, portray him as a child molester, and then wonder what all the fuss was about when it was only ever a work of fiction, in the first place. The fact is, when you make a movie that describes the history of an actual person or organization or group of people, and characters in the movie, educated and knowledgeable characters, inform other characters about historical events in the life of that organization that actually exists, and they go so far as to include names and dates in what amounts to a scandal, at this point in the book Dan Brown informs the reader via his character that up until the Council of Nicaea, Jesus had only ever been viewed as a human and not divine, people who themselves have no special interest in church history are intrigued, perhaps even convinced. The church, that corrupt and conniving church, what other secrets are they hiding? But let's step away from movies and fictional books. More subtle, and therefore more successful, is the attempt to promote similar stories of the orthodox, powerful, squeezing out alternative books of the Bible on the grounds of bias or prejudice against this group or that group, or even against homosexuality in at least one case, and the general attempt to say that books presenting a very different version of Christianity have equal historical legitimacy to the books that are now in the New Testament. Presented in what is clearly a non fiction format and is meant to be received as a scholarly treatment of the issue. In the last couple of decades, in particular, there has been a considerable surge of interest in the corrupt inside job of Christianity, that conspiracy to exclude other books of the Bible. Books that really, we are told, have every bit as much place in the history of Christianity as the four Gospels themselves, and the surreptitious way that those in power have gone about doing so, sneakily changing a verse here, adding or deleting a word there, voting books out of the Bible on nothing more than sectarian grounds, and so forth. The net effect of this, or at least one of the effects of this, is that more people who do actually have an interest in Christianity, uh, generally because they don't like it, don't believe it, and would very much like to see it discredited in any way possible, but who have not themselves delved into the evidence for these theses, or taken the time to read the responses to these theses, after all, you, you know you can't trust those Christians when they're defending their faith, they might say. People like that have latched on to such descriptions of history as fact. What's more, Christians who are not themselves well acquainted with things like textual criticism, the formation of the canon, or the alternative books that are in question, just don't know what to say about the sometimes shocking-sounding claims that are being published. So in this episode of Say Hello to My Little Friend, I'm going to be looking at one of these types of claims. Professor of History and Religious Studies at Pennsylvania State University, Philip Jenkins, sums up what is now happening and what I will be talking about. He says, With so many hidden Gospels now brought to light, it is now often claimed that the four Gospels were simply four among many of roughly equal worth, and the alternative texts gave just as valid a picture of Jesus as we have today. I'll be looking at the claim that there are alternative Gospels that paint a very different picture of Jesus and of early Christianity, but these Gospels were repressed and excluded from the New Testament even though they have all the same historical importance and reliability as the four Gospels that we now have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'll do this by looking at three important examples of these alternative Gospels. I'll look at the Gospel of Thomas, which I think is arguably the most important one, the Gospel of Peter, and then what I think is one of the most interesting examples, the secret Gospel of Mark. So that's what we're doing today, and without further ado, let's get started. (music) The Gospel of Thomas, asking the question, were the Gnostics mainstream, and perhaps the original Christianity? After all, well, the short answer is no. The Gospel of Thomas is probably the most important of the alternative Gospels, and it has attracted more attention than the others. It was discovered in a place called Nag Hammadi in Egypt, along with a number of other Gnostic texts in 1945. The Gospel of Thomas itself is more or less universally recognized as being a Gnostic, document presenting a Jesus who teaches a Gnostic version of Christianity. Now for for those listeners who aren't sure what Gnosticism is, it's not easy to sum up succinctly because it was quite a cluster of beliefs and practices that varied and at times even contradicted, but here are some common strands of thought in Gnostic religion. So here's Gnosticism 101. Physical matter including flesh, is corrupt, and what is really pure is immaterial spirit. Ultimate redemption, therefore, is to be finally freed from physical life and to enjoy disembodied spiritual life forever. There was certainly no resurrection in Gnosticism. The God who created the physical universe is not the God revealed to us in the person of Jesus. I mean, how could he be? Um, Jesus is good, matter is bad or corrupt at any rate. And so the being that created the physical universe is kind of a demiurge or a subordinate God who is not really good at all. And so God did not become flesh. Remember, flesh is corrupt. Instead, most Gnostics take the view that either Jesus was not really human, but only appeared to be, which is a view called docetism. Or they take the view that Jesus was a mere man upon whom the Spirit of Christ descended, usually at his baptism, and the Spirit departed from him after his death. Gnosticism was a blend of Christianity, Greek philosophy, and Eastern or Asian religion. Communion with God in this life consists in acquiring secret knowledge, the Greek word gnosis, which is where Gnosticism comes from. Contemplation of secrets or mysteries was a central theme in Gnosticism, and in the Gospel of Thomas what we have is essentially an alleged collection of the secret sayings of Jesus. In the Gospel of Thomas there is no passion narrative, There's no account of the suffering or the death of Jesus. In keeping with its Gnostic theme, God is a perfect spirit, so there's no reference to the birth of Christ, let alone any Christological statements about the word becoming flesh. There's none of that. God never became flesh in Gnostic theology, and he never actually suffered. There are no miracle accounts either in the Gospel of Thomas. What we have is just a collection of secret sayings. Again, in keeping with the rather navel-gazing contemplative nature of Gnostic thought. These are just things to reflect on and contemplate the mystery thereof. There's also no talk of avoiding immorality in this life and no concern for social justice. The whole this-worldly aspect of the gospel is just not there. For Gnosticism escaped from this world and not the improvement or redemption of this world is what mattered. So, how old is the Gospel of Thomas? Uh, Well, one rather enthusiastic fan of the Gospel of Thomas, Stephen Davies, goes as far as to say that the Gospel of Thomas should be dated no later than A.D. 70, perhaps as early as A.D. 50. He places it earlier than the four Gospels we have and says that the Gospel of Thomas may well have had a major influence on them. Similarly, the Jesus Seminar in their book, The Five Gospels, the title Five Gospels gives you a clue as to how important they think Thomas is. It should be the fifth gospel, they think. Uh, They consider that the sayings of Jesus found in the gospel of Thomas are more likely to be authentic than those found in Matthew or Mark. Those are pretty strong claims. In light of how strong those claims are, what does the evidence suggest? I'm going to come to that in just a moment, but first, let's have a look at some of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas. The Gnostic theme of the Gospel of Thomas is announced right at the beginning, and I quote, These are the secret words which, which Jesus the Living One spoke, and Didymus Judas Thomas wrote down. And he said, Whosoever finds the interpretation of these sayings shall never taste death. End quote. So there you have it, secret teachings given only to the followers of Jesus, and by obtaining the right interpretation of the sayings, you'll get eternal life. Thomas, in this gospel, is singled out from the other disciples by Jesus in a conversation, and he gives Thomas three secret words that are not given to anyone else. The disciples beg Thomas to share the secret words, but Thomas tells them that if he uttered even one of those words, they would take up stones to stone him, but the stones would emit fire against the disciples and consume them. As F.F. F. Bruce has pointed out helpfully, a Gnostic sect called the Nascenes believed that the existence of the world depends on three secret words, and also that stones are animate beings. There's also some pretty politically incorrect material in Thomas in the final saying where Jesus declares that if a woman becomes male, then she may enter the kingdom of God. Uh, It's sometimes said that these new alternative gospels are a godsend for liberals. I don't think so. Not when you find comments like that in them. Contrast this with some of the undeniably earliest Christian writing by the Apostle Paul, who, uh, for example, in Galatians 3, taught that we are all children of God through faith, and that there is no relevant distinction, therefore, between male and female in determining who is and is not part of God's kingdom. The complete opposite from the Gospel of Thomas. As a movement splitting off from Christianity, now, uh, bear in mind, I'm summarizing. These are just a few things out of the Gospel of Thomas. As a movement splitting off from Christianity, Christian Gnosticism didn't exist until sometime in the 2nd century when it was swiftly condemned by Christian apologists like Irenaeus and Tertullian. This means that the teaching found in the Gospel of Thomas is likely to have been penned around the time or slightly beforehand that Gnosticism became a popular movement. Uh, interestingly, although Bart Ehrman, as I note from time to time, often sides with the more skeptical outlook to the uniqueness of the four canonical Gospels as witnesses to the first Christian beliefs about Jesus, and sometimes I think he gives more weight than might be justified to uh, alternative Gospels. In the case of the Gospel of Thomas, Dr. Ehrman frankly admits, to his credit I think, that the the presence of what clearly appears to be Gnostic theology places this Gospel later than the canonical Gospels. He suggests a dating of the early 2nd century. I actually think there's more evidence to consider. One piece in particular, and bear in mind, I'm not, again, I'm not choosing all the evidence to cover. We'd be here for a very long time, just what I think is the most important. There's one key piece that I think Bart Ehrman doesn't really take into account. The Gospel of Thomas reproduces some of the sayings of Jesus that are found in at least some of the canonical Gospels. But the form of those sayings is slightly different. Uh, Store that fact in short-term memory, and then consider these facts. At some time after 150, AD 150, and quite possibly as late as AD 175, Tatian, who was a pupil of the Christian apologist Justin Martyr, had composed a work referring to uh, that sorry that we refer to as the Diatessaron. Now, the Diatessaron was a single narrative of the life of Jesus that was put together by combining the accounts out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John into one account, uh, written in a form of Aramaic that we call Syriac. Interestingly, this indicates that by the year 150, by the way. Christians already accepted four Gospels in particular as authoritative because those are the ones that Tatian chose. But the thing to notice here is that by forging the four Gospels into one and changing their language, the various different wordings of the sayings of Jesus were now made into new forms that incorporated all of the earlier material where possible into new forms. Okay, now the stage is set. Remember what I said about uh, the Gospel of Thomas, reproducing some of the sayings of Jesus that are found in some of the other Gospels? Well, in the Gospel of Thomas, where the writer draws on the early material that it previously appeared in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the forms of those sayings is different, and it's actually the same form as those sayings as they appeared in the Diatessaron. They are the Syriac, Forms Now what this indicates is that the writer of the Gospel of Thomas had access not simply to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which would show that it was written after them, but it shows that he actually had access to the forms of those sayings as they appeared in a book, namely the Diatestadon, that was not written until sometime between, say, AD 150 and 175. Uh, A scholar of the Gospel of Thomas, Nicholas Perrin, develops this case more fully than anyone else in his in-depth scholarly book. Thomas and Tatian, the relationship between the Gospel of Thomas and the Diatessaron. he shows as well, incidentally, that uh, whoever wrote the Gospel of Thomas also knew the order and the arrangement of the material in the Diatessaron and reproduces it in his Gospel of Thomas. Now, if the author of a book has access to material that wasn't available until the late 2nd century... What does that tell us about the book that he wrote? Well, it means that he didn't write the book until at least the late 2nd century. Now, there are other considerations to make as well. Uh, For example, Thomas quotes parallels, sorry, quotes, uh, he parallels, or he alludes to, 14 or 15 books of the New Testament. That's a lot. That's a lot more than any Christian writer in the early 1st century, sorry, early 2nd century used. So this book was written at a time when a large amount of the New Testament was compiled and being quoted by Christian communities. Now none of this means that the Gospel of Thomas has no value. It does have value. But value is relative. Value for what? Value for seeing what first century Christians believed and taught about the life and person of Jesus? No. We have much better sources for that already. Namely, the Gospels that were actually written in the first century. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Uh, does the Gospel of Thomas have value for seeing the way that 2nd century Gnosticism was re-portraying Jesus as a Gnostic philosopher? Yes, it does. But to imply that this Gospel is on equal historical footing with the others and that it was unfairly dismissed as part of the power struggle that produced our current New Testament, well, that's, a, that's, that's an enticing and intriguing and juicy version of history that makes for more enjoyable reading and maybe it attracts more interest from popular publishers, but it's a sexed-up version of history that does not stand up to scrutiny. Moving right along now, we come to the next example, the Gospel of Peter. Now, the Gospel of Peter is really uh, better described as a Gospel fragment we have the equivalent of about 60 verses of it. It was discovered in the tomb of a monk in Achmim, Egypt. Now, the monk died in the ninth century, and in the same codex, that is the same collection here, was the the Apocalypse of Peter, an account of the martyrdom of Julian from the Byzantine era, as well as fragments from the Greek version of Enoch. Now, according to Bart Ehrman, and I quote, The Gospel of Peter was known and used as Scripture in some parts of the Christian church in the second century. Its use was eventually disallowed by church leaders, however, who considered some of its teaching heretical and who claimed as a consequence that it could not have been written by Peter. Quote. Now he says this in reference to the fragment found in the tomb. But here's where things just start to get a bit interesting yes the ancient church historian eusebius and also bishop serapion um warned christians away that is the sorry the historian refers to the the bishop warning christians away from a gospel that was falsely attributed to peter but the fact is we don't really know at all if this fragment comes from that gospel or not It's a very short fragment, with the beginning and the end missing. Toward the end of the fragment, the author claims to be Simon Peter, yes, and it is this fact, along with perhaps the fact that the fragment was discovered along with the so-called apocalypse of Peter, that has led some to believe that this, in fact, is the long-lost gospel of Peter that Eusebius refers to. But how would we find out? Now, what what kind of investigation would we carry out? Well, that's a good question, because we have no copies of that gospel other than what is alleged to be a fragment of it in this Codex. So how do we know that this is the 2nd century Gospel of Peter? It's a tricky one. What's more, the gospel attributed to Peter that people knew about at the close of the 2nd century was condemned because it taught the heresy of Docetism. Now, docetism is the doctrine that Jesus wasn't really human, but he only appeared to be. It's hard to say that this idea is present in the Akmim fragment. I mean, one, it's it's very short, and it's hard to get a good survey of what it teaches. Yes, it does portray Jesus as being silent on the cross, as one would be silent if they felt no pain and weren't really human. But then again, this idea is present in the canonical Gospels as well. Jesus is like a lamb who famously opened not his mouth as the book of Isaiah prophesied it would be hard to say more about that without a larger sample from this uncovered text can we rule it out as being the older gospel of Peter no of course not but we also can't assume that it is who knows this may be a a work written centuries later than the 2nd century or it could be a work written within the 2nd century we just don't know however the question of heresy is by no means the only factor in determining whether or not this was actually a first century document after all along with the four canonical gospels as james hannam demonstrates this fragmentary gospel includes material drawn from matthew mark and luke plus more developed material so it must have been later than all three of those and the author must have had access to all of them. It also appears to draw on the seven seals depicted in the book of Revelation. Now, generally speaking, the more liberal the biblical scholar, the later the date assigned to the book of Revelation. Many say the close of the first century, in the 90s. So these facts alone would mean that the book that this fragment comes from was almost certainly composed after all the books that are in the New Testament, and after at least a number of them were drawn together. What's more, there's also some pretty strong internal evidence, that is, evidence based on the content of the text, that this fragment is considerably later than the New Testament. Uh, going out on a limb, pretty much all by himself, Jesus Seminar member John Dominic uh, Croissant says that this, the gospel this fragment came from could have been written as early as AD 50 in his book The Cross That Spoke. The internal evidence that I've just discussed makes this, I think, impossible, just because it draws on books that were written after AD 50. But there's even more evidence to rule it out as well. For example, this Gospel of Peter is thought by many to be anti-Semitic. Pilate and Rome are absolved of all blame in the death of Christ, and the crucifixion although a Roman punishment, is blamed on the Jewish king, Herod Agrippa. This appears to be the product of a Christian author at a time after Gentile Christians had dissociated themselves from Israel. This isn't a definitive proof of anything. It is merely suggestive. However, this kind of dissociation did not happen until after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, so dating it in the 50s and suggesting that Jewish authors like Matthew or Mark would have based their Gospels on it is not very believable. Plus, the author appears quite ignorant of religious and social realities of the first century in Israel. For example, in this Gospel fragment after Pilate hands over Jesus to be crucified, the ruling Priest, the ruling Jewish priest, wanders off and spends the night in the cemetery. Now, a priest would never do that. The author just doesn't seem to know anything about Jewish purity laws. Further, underlying the fact that possibly heretical claims are not the only reason that this gospel would have been rejected as a late fake, basically, and not originating with Peter, are the truly bizarre events portrayed in this fragment. While there is some material that has been taken from the earlier canonical Gospels, there is some highly unusual added material not supported by any other ancient source at all. The disciples go to the tomb, this is after Jesus has been buried, not on the first day of the week but on the Sabbath, not something Jewish disciples would do by the way, and the stone rolls away all by itself they find that Jesus is gone and they wake up the Roman guards to tell them. While they are all there, they see Jesus being brought out of the tomb by two angels. And get this, the angels are so tall that their heads go right up to the clouds so they can be seen for miles away. But Jesus is so colossally huge that his head is above the clouds. The three are followed out of the tomb by... Guess who? No, guess what? They're followed out of the tomb by the cross, of all things, and it's talking. A voice from heaven asks, Have you preached to those who are asleep? That is, those who are dead. And Jesus does not answer. The cross answers, saying yes. Now let's all call a spade a spade. This wouldn't have to be heretical to be rejected. It's absurdity alone is enough to earn it that indignity. But as well as this, there are traces here of beliefs that simply had not been formed in the first century. The reference to Jesus preaching to the dead in a, in a disembodied state prior to the resurrection has become one interpretation of a text in First Peter. But it is a doctrine, it is a terp- an interpretation that did not find clear expression until the 2nd century, not the 1st century. As for this talking cross that had been in the tomb with Jesus, legends about the cross like this, says New Testament scholar Craig Evans, with the cross following Jesus around and then even preceding him into heaven, began to circulate in the late 2nd century and into the 3rd century. None of these pieces of evidence bodes well for any suggestion that the Gospel of Peter deserves to stand alongside Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as early witnesses to Christian beliefs about the life of Jesus. Now this brings us to the final example that I'm going to be looking at, the secret Gospel of Mark. Was it in fact a homophobic cover-up? Here's what Dr. Dr. Bart Ehrman has to say on the secret gospel of Mark. The so-called secret gospel of Mark says Dr. Ehrman is a longer edition of Mark's gospel than has been known only since 1958. I'm still quoting now from Dr. Ehrman while cataloging manuscripts in the library of the Greek Orthodox monastery of Mar Saba, located southeast of Jerusalem an American scholar, Morton Smith, came upon a seventeenth century edition of the letters of Ignatius. End quote. That's where the story begins. Morton's account is that in the final blank pages of this work, a scribe had added a copy of a portion of a letter allegedly written by Clement of Alexandria, but completely unknown in any existing copies. Of Clement's work, until now so it seemed. The letter allegedly related that Mark had written not one, but two versions of his gospel, one for ordinary Christians and one for a spiritual upper class who could grasp the full mysteries of the kingdom of God. Basically, the claim was that Mark wrote a Gnostic gospel as well as an Orthodox one. That's putting it in layman's terms assuming that the the layman knows what Gnosticism is. This secret version of the Gospel had been given to Christians in Alexandria, but some Gnostics had misused it. A particular group of Gnostics, the Carpocratians, known for their illicit sexual rituals. And I'm quoting at length now from Ehrmane. Clement then narrates two of the accounts found in the secret gospel. The contents of the stories, especially the first, show why this version of the gospel could have seemed so dangerous to the church at large and so interesting to the Carpocratians. Did I say that correctly earlier? It's Carpocratians. Jesus raises a youth from the dead who then loves Jesus and begs to be allowed to stay with him. It's not hang around with him, to stay with him. After six days, the youth comes to Jesus in the evening, clothed with nothing but a linen garment over his naked body. They spend the night together with Jesus, teaching the youth the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The highly unusual character of the story, in particular its homoerotic overtones, have led scholars to debate virtually every aspect of the secret gospel. Still quoting from Ehrman, by the way. Did Clement of Alexandria actually write this letter, preserved only in an 18th century fragment that is no longer available for examination? Smith published photographs of the document, but the original is inaccessible. Why is this gospel, or even Clement's letter, never mentioned by any other ancient source? Is the letter an ancient forgery? A modern forgery? If the letter is actually by Clement, were the stories that it narrates known before the end of the second century? Do they actually come from a second edition of Mark's Gospel? Could they instead have originally been part of the first edition of the Gospel, only to be deleted by Orthodox Christian scribes concerned with their ethical implications? Were these stories widely known by Christians already in the first century, such as the author of the fourth gospel? Could they in fact have actually happened? Now notice how he puts all these questions side by side as though they're equally plausible questions, and you could just just as easily get a yes to one of them as to another of them. But don't let any of this escape your attention. Look very carefully at what Ehrman says. He says that the thing in particular that motivates scholars to dispute this letter is the fact that it has homoerotic overtones. While Ehrman passes over a couple of questions about whether or not the letter is authentic, he ends by asking us to consider whether or not these stories might actually have been known by first century Christians, whether they might have been covered up By the morally conservative church, and lastly, the possibility that these events actually happened. The most controversial issue, and I think the most important, is lost in the middle of these questions, as though all of these questions are equally worthy of consideration. So, we are first told that the main reason that people argue about this gospel is the homoerotic overtones then the possibility that the church doctored the gospel because of those overtones is presented to us as just as reasonable as a range of other possibilities. Sensational. Scandalous. And do you know what's just happened? That's right. To the reader of Ehrman's book, Lost Scriptures, who has not done any background study on the secret gospel of Mark, and let's face it, someone who bought the book just because of the rave review in the New York Times, quite possibly has not done this. They're probably buying the book to find these things out themselves. Some of the most important information has been left out of Ehrman's comments, and given Ehrman's expertise, there is zero possibility that he was unaware of those pieces of information. He mentions very few of these facts in another book, um, Lost Christianities, but even still much of the, the material is left uncovered. I want to look at some of those facts now. I'll start with what I'm going to regard as the less relevant facts to get them out of the way, and then I'll get to the more serious facts that need to be considered. I say these facts are less relevant because they involve suggestions about Morton Smith's motives. And it's always difficult and risky to dissect motives. Morton Smith was a homosexual man who had sought to get his views about early Christian mysteries and in particular forbidden sexual practices accepted. He was 40 years old and had been denied tenure at the university where he started his career. What should then happen? But he... Surprisingly, discovers this previously completely unknown gospel written by Mark that might be seen to legitimize his earlier claims about early Christianity extraordinarily conveniently. Had Morton Smith been a conservative evangelical who had wanted to find an early secular reference to the resurrection of Jesus and then found something that no one else had ever heard of, you know, some public document stating, I am aware of this fellow named Jesus of Nazareth who rose from the dead, or something like that. Something that conformed nicely to what he had been looking for, you can be sure that he would be placed under the spotlight. So having said that, how well then does Morton Smith fare in the same position? I won't count this possible dissection of motives, and the very convenient nature of the discovery among the facts, but it's something to bear in mind when looking at them. So let's look at the first fact, missing evidence. The first is a fact that Ehrman admits, but he still says that the gospel of the secret gospel of Mark sorry, is a genuine one. It's a genuine discovery of a very early gospel, Bart Ehrman believes. The first fact is an answer to an obvious question. What did other experts think other than Morton Smith after they, too, examined the document that Morton Smith says he found? The answer is this. No other human being has ever even seen this manuscript, let alone examined it. Nobody! And why not? Because it's vanished. It's just gone. Morton Smith says that he left it at the monastery in Marsaba. But no one else has ever been able to find it. The parchment cannot be tested, the ink cannot be closely studied, no examination at all uh, has been or can be carried out on this amazing discovery. I'm reminded of another smith who made an amazing discovery purporting to convey the word of God, going by the name of Joseph, only in his case it was not in it was Golden Plates in America. Under normal circumstances, the total absence of the alleged physical evidence would be sufficient to relegate a story like this to the ranks of tales about the one that got away, but not so. Take, for example, defender of Morton Smith's uh, discovery, Scott Brown of the University of Toronto. He defends the authenticity of Smith's claim by saying, Three Western scholars had in fact located it there in 1976, but failed in their attempt to arrange for its testing. Brown is troubled that critics of this gospel do not take this into account. He also complains that such critics do not acknowledge, and I quote, Thomas Talley's report in 1981 that the book into which the manuscripts had been copied was now in the Patriarchal Library in Jerusalem, in part because Talley had not seen the actual manuscript, which a librarian, Callistos Duovas, had removed for photographing around the time of the book's transfer from Marsaba in 1976. The present librarians claim that they cannot find it. So, we have a man who discovered it, but never showed anyone. Three witnesses who went to Marsaba to get it tested but failed. No test was ever carried out. No evidence for the existence of this document was ever produced by those three people. And a claim by someone who has never seen the document that is now in a library that doesn't have it. If anything, these defences only further the comparisons to Joseph Smith's golden plates. If the story of the Golden Plates is a testimony to the gullibility of Mormons. Whose gullibility does this story testify to? Not looking at anyone in particular, Dr. Bart Ehrman. Second piece of evidence, the autograph. What do you mean the autograph? Well, sometimes the word autograph refers to the original uh, written document. Obviously, that's not the case here because there isn't one that we know of. The second thing to note And here is where things start to get a little more suspicious, a little more suspicious. They're already suspicious, now they're getting more suspicious. The photos of the pages in question. Morton Smith took photos of the pages containing this supposed letter from Clement, meaning, as just noted, that the content of what was written could be read, but nothing could be tested. But there was something else on one of the pages. Morton Smith had signed the document. Smith, 65 Now you put yourself in the position of a scholar who has been granted access to an ancient and incredibly valuable collection of ancient tomes to document and catalogue. Who in the world would write their name on one of them? It's not yours, and you're certainly not the author. Or are you? Ehrman makes mention of the fact that a growing number of scholars unlike himself, believe that the secret gospel of Mark is a forgery perpetuated by Morton Smith. But uh, Bart Ehrman doesn't tell readers about the fact that Morton's name appears on one of the pages, because that's not important obviously. A Piece of evidence number three, the shaky hand Modern handwriting analysis is not likely to be something that Morton Smith was intimately familiar with when he wrote, but examination of the photos that Smith provided has revealed an interesting phenomenon, which uh, is noted by Stephen Carlson in his book dedicated to examining the question of whether or not Secret Mark is a hoax. He observes a phenomenon sometimes called the Forger's Tremor. He can kind of tell what it is from the name. The term refers to physical evidence that the script is not genuine writing but something more like drawing copying an image for example frequently in a curve or a rounded letter where one would expect the hand to be moving fairly quickly when writing naturally there appears a blob of ink as though the pen had paused or slowed right down as the writer checked with an image or a letter being copied to see where the next sorry to see where the line should go next A scribe in the 18th century, or any time for that matter, had no need to actually imitate the style of writing. He didn't have to copy any images. He could simply reproduce the words in his own script, which is exactly what scribes do. As there would be no need to try to make the script look like that of an earlier time or another hand. If someone's trying to do that, then something fishy is going on. As reviewer Roger Pierce Pierce notes, the argument is not absolutely conclusive. What we would need in order to have an argument like that, namely a conclusive one, is a rather large sample of 18th century Greek writings along with a good sample of Morton Smith's writing in Greek. We don't have either of those things, unfortunately. Nevertheless, the phenomenon of the forger's tremor is well known in handwriting analysis and forensic study, and according to Carlson, something resembling exactly that phenomenon is clearly present in the photographed pages of the secret Gospel of Mark. piece of evidence number four, the stylistic giveaways. We're heading into what may be somewhat more subjective territory, but it has an interesting ending. Carlson also notes that in secret Mark, the scribe, had an idiosyncratic way of forming certain Greek letters, theta and lambda. Carlson compares these forms with some small samples of Morton's own Greek notes in copies of various texts. So these notes were not meant for public viewing, they were just him being himself, writing the way he naturally does. According to Carlson, the unusual forms in the secret Gospel of Mark of these letters match those in Carlson's, sorry not Carlson's, Morton Smith's own writing. As with the former argument, uh, it would be helpful to have access to a larger sample, perhaps a larger amount of Smith's writing in Greek, but here's the thing. Smith, who is now deceased, ordered his papers to be burnt so that no one could read them after he was dead. I find that rather interesting. I don't know whether you will or not, but I most certainly do. Reflect on those four pieces of evidence, and bear in mind Morton Smith's background, as mentioned earlier, and then ask yourself, how honest is it for someone like Bart Ehrman to say that the reason in particular that scholars dispute the authenticity of the secret gospel of Mark is that it presents a homosexual overtone, or that the Church might be uncomfortable with the moral teachings of this book, so they suppressed it, or forbade it, or got rid of it. Such an uncharitable and unsubstantiated comment is beneath someone who wants to operate at the scholarly level that Ehrman does, and seriously posing the possibility, as plausible as any other, that the Orthodox Christians conspired to delete this book because they did not like it, it's it's the stuff that tabloids are made of. There is clear evidence upon which to base a case that this book is not genuine. And yet Dr. Ehrman chooses to say, well, the main reason people disputed this is because it was a gay book. What a load of rubbish. So look at those three examples that I've given you there. I think you can see some common themes. You can see what I think are generally uh, conspiracy theory type claims. The claims that these Gospels were squeezed out by the Orthodox Christians in a power struggle in determining what should and should not be in the Bible. And they didn't like certain views, so they suppressed them. The reality, however, is that this is enticing. It it makes for good conspiracy stories, yeah, a bit of cloak and dagger involved. But the reality is there is good, clear, and readily available evidence that the books in question are not in the same league as those books that actually appear in our New Testament. And yet, you will find that books that peddle theories like this are more popular than conservative treatments of Christian history. They just are. Why is this? Why is it that even though there is such good evidence available to rebut these claims, these books are nonetheless sellers. What's going on? Well, I think Craig Evans sums it up quite well. When he says, and I quote, The problem is that there are so many people pursuing doctorates, writing dissertations, pursuing tenure, and trying to get published, that there's a tendency to push the facts beyond where they should go. If you're hoping to get on the network news, well news has got to be new nobody is going to get excited if you say that the traditional view of the gospel seems correct but if you come up with something outrageous that Jesus body was eaten by dogs for example and by the way it is a claim that is seriously made when it comes to theories on what happened to Jesus but I'll set that aside for now that Jesus body was eaten by dogs for example then that warrants a headline Or if you say that there's a gospel just as valid as Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but it was suppressed in an early church power play, well, that's news. It's unfortunate, but I think it's true. I think it's an appeal to the lowest common denominator. It's like, instead of putting something in a documentary, putting it on Ricky Lake instead. That's how I think it works, because you're putting it before an audience that doesn't have the background, to filter what they're reading. You've got letters after your name. You publish these claims. They are fascinating. They are interesting. They demonize traditional Christian churches. The result is predictable. You are going to be believed and you're going to be held as some sort of whistleblower who's uncovered the truth. It's the the stuff that movies are made of. The situation is only made worse, I think, by the fact that any conservative response to this sensationalist material is regarded by fans of the latter as a reactionary, knee-jerk, or dogmatic piece of work. And the evidence presented by these responses is rarely examined. It's as though people, or at least some of them, have longed for there to be a case for undermining the credibility of the New Testament as a faithful witness to early Christian belief. And now that people have published those conclusions, never mind the evidence, they've published the conclusions, those in waiting have gone into rejoice mode, and nothing is going to get in their way, the facts be damned. Any criticism of these fun theories is seen as dogmatic, And it is discredited, simply because it is in defense of a traditional Christian perspective. I put it to you, dear listeners, that this is the epitome of dogmatism. If you don't believe that this this takes place, there's a place called the Internet. Just have a look around. If you're a Christian and you have heard or read about new and compelling evidence that the New Testament we now have is the product of a power struggle among different but equally legitimate versions of Christianity, all with very different but equally credible Gospels, presenting equally reliable portraits of Jesus, but you weren't sure what to make of these claims, relax. It's not true that where there is smoke, there is always a fire. In this case... There's nothing but smoke. If you are one of those people who eagerly devours the latest and most scandalous account of how the powerful orthodox institutional church has suppressed, burned, lied about, or banned other versions of the gospel, the story of Jesus, on merely sectarian grounds, when those gospels have every bit as much right, based on the evidence, to stand side by side with the canonical Gospels that we now have in our New Testament please look into the evidence that I've discussed today also whatever you do read both sides of these arguments if someone comes out of the woodwork and announces that there's this new other gospel that's just as good as any other gospel always look carefully at what their evidence is always check to see what responses have been made to the claim and always check the evidence presented in those responses as well look into it carefully for yourself in the show notes for this episode i've included a brief by no means exhaustive fairly brief but hopefully reasonably helpful a bibliography a list of books and articles for some further reading some of that material is available online but some of it involves reading real books the things made of paper remember those The internet is an easy place to get way out claims published for free. And you'll find all kinds of stuff out there that doesn't have to meet any minimum standards of truth or credibility. Uh, Libraries and bookstores are your friend here. Now, as always, I welcome any comments or questions about the issues raised at Say Hello to My Little Friend. Drop me a line at podcast at beretta-online.com and I'll address your question or comment on the show. You can even send an audio clip of your comment or question so I can play it on the show, or leave a comment at the blog. In fact, speaking of the blog, if you're someone who listens to this podcast at the iTunes store, uh, which is probably the best way to listen to it, make sure you do check out the blog www.beretta-online.com and click on blog in fact check out the whole site as well but do check out the blog as I publish plenty of stuff there that you won't hear about in the podcast I'm also still on the lookout for someone who might be interested in doing some co-hosting here on the show and just contributing to the site in general as well that's all that there is time for today now I have to go away and come up with a topic for next time in the meantime take care and this is Glenn People saying later for now from say hello to my little friend